Yes, I'm back. My name is Danny Grant, and I would like to welcome you back to the studio. This is the place where I interview and talk shop with other professional artists, and we get an inside glimpse into their daily lives as professional artists. On this episode is artist Douglas Flint. I first met Doug in 2007 when he came to the Water Street Atelier and gave a one-week still-life workshop. Um, After that week, there was just an incredible new energy and enthusiasm in the room um, for all the students, and it was because of Doug's presentation of color. Doug taught us how to mix color and create natural feeling form in our paintings by using the three properties of color, hue, value, and chroma, and using a neutral string to modify chroma and value. And um, it it just gave us so much more confidence in, in approaching our paintings. So since then, Doug has continued to do research on color and has clearly become, I'd say, Uh, with Scott Waddell and Graydon Parrish, probably or definitely one of the top experts on color in our field. Um, But I want to note, he's done all this work to understand color and light better so that he can better express all the beautiful natural effects of light on forms and different surfaces and textures. And it shows in his work. Um, There are few painters who are able to capture in a painting some of the incredibly beautiful and subtle light effects that Doug does and uh, if you're not familiar with Doug's paintings please do yourself a favor and go check them out so without further ado uh, please enjoy this interview with Douglas Flint all right uh, everybody here with Douglas Flint from I almost said Flint, Michigan. That was going to be fun. Um, <laughs> not Flint, Michigan. Uh, I can understand uh, Fort, this Fort, Yeah. Uh, Fort Myers, Florida, right, Doug? Yep, over in Fort Myers, yeah. Awesome. Maybe not the place to bring this up, but I did just hear Fort Myers in the uh, news. Is that right? Uh, yeah, are you talking about the, I think it was Zombie Con? Yeah, shooting going on there or something? Uh, yeah, there was a uh, a shooting. I actually don't know very much about it. I've only heard about it from other people, but I guess there was a zombie con convention, which I guess is, I guess it's something to do with uh, sort of music, but also zombies. I don't quite know. I've never <laughs> been to one. and uh, But I did hear that there was a uh, a shooting, but I didn't hear any sort of motivation or anything. Yeah, what was going on there so it's it's always lovely yes to have your you know your city come <laughs> up in the news that way that's the yeah <laughs> very nice proper well, thing so good news is you, you weren't there though, i right? was not there i i didn't right. even know that it was going on so <laughs> I, I wasn't there you're not a yearly participant I, at the uh, I, zombie I, I didn't even know what it was when somebody <laughs> mentioned it so it shows you how out of the loop i am of our sort of local um um, I don't know what to call it, local music party scene. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Doug, thanks again um, for being on the show, man. Um, let's get started with, I guess, the way I've been starting every interview so far. Um, can you tell us about your daily schedule? What, you know, if you're getting into the studio at the same time every day or 
what happens? You know, that's um, that's always sort of a, a challenging thing. And I, I think it's probably similar to what, you know, I listened to your interview that you did with Brian and also with Scott. And uh, as with everybody else, it seems to sort of change. It's not as consistent as I would like. And part of that is I do have a, a daughter who's three years old. And of course, her sort of daycare situation and stuff definitely changes my schedule. Um, mm -hmm. But what I, so right now I'm not really on a very good schedule at the moment. I, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. It's not necessarily that it's, that I'm not on a good schedule. It's that my schedule isn't really having me put time in the studio right now because I've got a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Okay. But what I do normally do um, is I actually have a, like a spreadsheet made up that is my sort of ideal week of like what I try to do or what I'd like to do when I'm trying to stay on sort of track. And mm -hmm. um, so if I sort of work from that as sort of like a, a base point, uh, it basically, ideally I'd get up pretty early, uh, maybe like between like 4.30 and 5.30. And then I sort of just do some exercises and stuff, maybe go ride my bike or something like that, sort of get my mind sort of cleared and listen to a podcast or something like that. And, uh, and then I sort of spent the morning uh, with my wife and my daughter sort of helping them get ready and sort of getting out the door. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, ideally, maybe they're out the door around seven or something like that. And then I sort of get myself together and uh, hopefully sort of get started working at about maybe like 830. Um, yeah. Uh, sometimes cool. closer to nine, I suppose. But uh, and then sort of work on through into the afternoon. Some afternoons I have all the way till about. 4.30 or 5, and some days I sort of have to cut it shorter, more like 2.30 or something like that. And um, just sort of depends on what time my wife gets home, my daughter gets home that day. And then in the evenings, uh, if I can, I usually try to squeeze in like another hour or so, but usually that's going to just be like office work or something, you know, right. evenings. And, uh, and is that is that after your daughter goes to bed? That is. So after my daughter's yeah. in bed, then I'll try to squeeze in a little more time. Um, unfortunately it's not long enough to actually like do any painting or anything like that. And yeah. So ideally what I've learned though, is that if I'm really going to get painting done, it sort of has to be done pretty early on in the day mm -hmm. because or else it just gets sidetracked as soon as I get on the computer and start dealing with email correspondences and things like that. Right. Um, but so that's that's really my day um, in terms. Do you feel like um, sorry to jump in here, but uh, do you feel like that that last hour of the night, even um, even say you didn't have office work to do at that time? Do you feel like you'd be able to really concentrate on painting? Because I, I try to do that same thing and I do I do, you know, say, get another hour in after my daughter goes to bed at eight. Um but it's tough. I'm kind of tapped out at that point. Do you feel the same way? Or? I, I actually totally agree. And I know one of the things, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations or, you know, related to productivity. And mm -hmm. I've listened to a lot of books on productivity and uh, mainly because I feel like I'm not very productive. Uh, and so I listen to books on productivity and stuff, trying <laughs> yeah. to figure out how to be more productive, um, right. implement things. And one of the things that I know from a lot of the sources that I've listened to is this, or an idea that comes up a lot, is that you really can only make so many decisions during the day. And yeah. you sort of basically, like you said, you get tapped out. And so mm -hmm. you really shouldn't be doing anything that's really critical or that requires like really intensive thinking 
sort of at that late point in the day. So I sort of try not to. I figure I'm not going to be at my best. And I've even heard things like, um, uh, I don't I don't know if this is true or not. I think I heard this somewhere. Um, I heard somebody talking about like different presidents and things like that. And um, I heard that when uh, President Obama was went into office, that he eliminated a large number of his suits in his wardrobe. So there would be mm-hmm. less decisions that he would have to make. Wow. I've heard that of other people too, other yeah. people in business that they do things like that to eliminate decisions they have to make in the morning so they don't sort of ex, uh, expend that sort of mental capital early on. Mm-hmm. The day. And so I, I basically, I've, I'm like you, I think I'd be sort of tapped out by the evening. And so I don't, I just want to do things that don't require a whole lot of mental energy at that point. Yeah. I, I think that's also, and, and that's one of the reasons why I asked this question is, um, you know, the uh, same kind of thing. I listen to a lot of podcasts on, on productivity and those kind of things. And, um, I think that having a, a morning routine that becomes uh, automatized, that also sort of cuts back on on those decision makings early in the morning, and where you can focus your mind on getting to the work and and making those you know decisions about you know painting. Um, I've, I've actually gotten into or tried to get back into this week a schedule that. I had been on probably a year ago that was working for me pretty well, um, which is getting up at five, setting the coffee maker the night before, um, <laughs> you know, so, so that I, I get out of bed and I roll into the kitchen and the coffee's made and I pour the coffee and I get into the studio and, you know, my brush is moving by 5.15. Um, that that and, is awesome. If, like, I, I still... I wish I could do that. <laughs> well, it's, yeah. I mean, it, the problem is, so so here's the rest of the schedule is I, um, and then about six, so I basically get to paint about, say, 5.15 to 6.45, and then I'm jumping into the shower, and then I make breakfast and, you know, take my daughter to daycare around eight or so. Um, and then I go teach until one in the afternoon, and the idea is that, well, I can get, you know, maybe an hour and a half in in the morning. And, and if nothing else, then I get my palette set up, right, for the afternoon when I come home and I and I have, say, four hours to paint. The problem that I'm running into this week is that I'll get home because I've woken up at five. I'll get home, I'd say, one thirty, and I'm already kind of spent wow. from getting up that early and then teaching. Um, and I don't know. Well, that seems like a really, you know, I'm surprised at that time frame in the morning. It just seems like it's really not a lot of time to get into painting at that point in the morning. Yeah, it, it's not. And uh, and I guess what I try to do, and I'm I'm sort of like, I like it because it's it's sort of a momentum builder. It's definitely not a lot of time to do much but you know kind of in the way that we paint we're not making huge paintings and what i'll try to do is just take a little a little piece of form you know and try to tackle a little piece of form in that hour and a half or whatever and um you know and it just it just sort of keeps the painting moving and then i can come back in the afternoon and pick up from there um Again, like I said, I'm I'm having trouble really being able to concentrate even at that time. 
Um, and I, I don't know what the solution is to that yet. I know that, you know, I've got to incorporate exercise at some point during my day to be able to sort of just have more energy in general. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having trouble with that, but that's a really, I think that's actually a really important thing. I, I just went through a period of a, a number of weeks where I sort of completely dropped off my exercise routine and I've actually only picked it up this last week again. And uh -huh. it just makes a huge difference in how much energy yeah. it's like, even though there's time lost doing it, it's just right. amazing how much more energy I have throughout the rest of the day after I've done mm -hmm. that, if I can get up in the morning and get going. And, um, and then there's, you know, there are also, um, you know, you sort of mentioned you have that, that short window to paint in the morning. Uh, to me, I usually think of painting, like if I'm going to paint, I really like sort of to have about a three hour minimum window to paint. Yeah. And, yeah. um, but I, I do look for ways to, uh, maximize that time or speed things up. And it was interesting when you said getting on sort of having this automation that you get up and turn on the, uh, the coffee maker. Um, <laughs> I actually don't drink coffee, but it's funny cause I get up and I actually start brewing coffee for my wife uh, while, oh, cool. while she's getting ready doing other stuff. But one of the things, now this is going to make me sound probably completely crazy, but one of the things I do is I create <laughs> lists and I actually uh -huh. store them. Like I have a list on my phone and I'm using an app that just, just makes these really simple checklists and it's just called uh -huh. morning routine. And uh -huh. literally when I get up, if I'm like sort of, um, if I'm sort of groggy or something, or, you know, just to remove the idea of having to make decisions, it's literally mm -hmm. just a checklist of all these mundane things that have to get done for basically for my morning to get started. And for my, my wife actually takes my daughter to daycare most of the time in the morning and to help get them out the door, because really I, I can't really start my day until sort of, uh, my right. wife and my daughter are sort of out. It's just too hard to sort of get focused on anything, uh, yeah. Yeah. since I work at home, have the studio at home. So, but so I literally have this checklist and it's, it's completely ridiculous things like, you know, making sure that my daughter has brushed her teeth, you know, but it's on the <laughs> list and it's yeah. just, but it's a great, I really believe in this sort of power of checklists and I even use it. I found myself, um, on this last project I was working on really sort of frustrated about how much time I could get in. And I started using a list to literally get going in the studio. Like I have, so I have a studio checklist and it's, yeah. it's these completely again, mundane things, but it's like, get in, turn on lights, uh, turn on air <laughs> conditioner, you know, move palette into place, roll painting into spot. You know, it's like all these little things, but it's amazing how at least I find I can get really distracted if I don't have that. And if I do this, I just literally don't have to think. It's like, what's the next thing on the list? Do it, done. Yeah. Let's do it, done. And I can be right. up and going in, you know, five minutes versus if I sort of get sidetracked, like looking at something or, you know, like, oh, mm -hmm you know, what are these paints over here? Or just get interested in something else. It can be more like 15 or 20 minutes to sort of really keep right. going. So, and every little bit of time seems to be really helpful in terms of saving time. So just the fact, just the um, act of looking at that list, even though it's like things that sort of are automatic anyway, do you feel like just the act of looking at that list keeps you focused on doing those things as opposed to, it's so easy to get distracted in the studio, walking in going, oh, does that canvas need to be restretched? Is that getting a little dust on that? What's going on over here? <laughs> it's exactly like you know? that. It just, it really yeah. keeps you focused on what you need to, to work on. 
But also another thing I think that's very helpful about um, having lists is that it keeps you from omitting anything that might turn out to be somewhat important later, like just overlooking little things. And it, mm -hmm. it probably seems sort of silly in relation to painting, but the, the, the reason I originally got into creating this list was actually listening to a podcast, although I don't recall which one it was, where somebody was talking about all these really important jobs that require checklists and how important they really were for like things like surgeons that actually had to check off on every mm. single thing they've done Right, they right. Their surgeon and their surgery, because you just never want to overlook something that you right. get complacent about, and um, and so the list not only I think helps efficiency, but it helps consistency and quality as well when you can implement that mm -hmm. list. So yeah, we hear about that a lot with airline pilots too, right? Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and so I, I, it everybody else thinks I'm absolutely crazy. They're like, well, you don't need a list <laughs> to remember all these things, but. I'm amazed at how much it sort of relieves that mental energy uh, or having to put energy forward, you know, thinking about things mentally. And then I can really try to hold on to uh, all of that sort of thought energy when I'm working on something much harder, like conceptualizing light raking around a piece of form and trying to imagine color shifting and color space, you know, mm -hmm. where I need to be and what I have to mix with and exactly my drawing, because that's where I'm going to put the location of the paint, you know. It's, I just want to reserve that and have that be where I put my energy and not have to think yeah. about, um, you know, did I close a door somewhere or, you know, or did, you know, what little thing did I overlook that I need to check later on? Right. And then something like that might get you up uh, from the easel to go check on a door or whatever. And then it just like sort of restarts the whole process for me anyways. I've got to like, you know. You know, and you come back in and reorient yourself again to the painting. I heard, I don't, again, I don't, it's, it's bad. I'm like saying all these things I've heard, but I have no idea where they came from. I can't remember. The <laughs> That's okay. But the, uh, talking about re-engaging in something, once you're really mentally into something, when mm -hmm. you're like called away, but like, uh, you know, I have it happen regularly that the, you know, the, the postal service like delivers a package or something like that. And it's not really like a five minute thing. When you leave something and you disengage with something mentally, right. it's really more about um, like 20 minutes. Not that you're not working on it again, but it takes about 20 minutes or so for your mind to really get back to where it was and really refocused mm -hmm. again. And so, um, you know, anything I can do to sort of overcome that mental fatigue, I, I feel like is important. And I also find the same thing in terms of um, trying to, sort of keep a list of tasks of what I'm trying to accomplish each day. It really sort of keeps me on track. And mm -hmm. without it, um, I, I definitely get sidetracked. It's not really so much like a sort of ADD thing. It's more um, like, I'll give an example today. I didn't really put together a clear schedule for today. I knew I was meeting with you later in the day, but mm -hmm. I really, last night I had bought another tube of purple paint and I was really curious <laughs> to figure out the complement color of that paint and if it was going to work as a complement for uh, a, a Hansa yellow for a sort of uh, idea of a color model I was thinking about. And once I did that, then, you know, I got distracted. I sort of mixed that up and it's like, oh, it's not quite working. And then I started thinking, oh, you know, it needs to go back more towards blue to be a perfect complement. <laughs> so I start digging out like ultramarine blue. And then pretty soon I'm like testing like 27 paints 
that I have downstairs in my in my studio, like working out their compliments and beginning to arrange them in color space, you know, and then I realized like, you know, an hour and a half, two hours has passed. And I'm like, uh, yeah. like, I mean, these are all things I want to know, but were they really the most important thing to be working on today? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one, th there's, uh, one thing I learned that I try to implement, um, from a guy named Alex Epstein, who's got some really good, uh, productivity ideas. Um, and that is just every morning before getting started writing down, say your top three priorities for the day, just things that, you know, you're not going to let yourself go to sleep at night before you've accomplished those three things. And they can be simple, you know, but it's just that idea is just kind of focusing your day. Well, I know that you, um, you and I have talked about, uh, David Allen's, uh, getting things done. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's something you're still using or making use of, but I definitely have put together a really sort of thorough system of keeping track of tasks and then mm -hmm. prioritizing them. And my best days, what I do is I sit down before I do any actual work. And I basically go through all of my sort of inboxes, if you will, physical inboxes, mm -hmm. email, and I decide what things need to be entered into those task lists and, you know, what things I don't need to worry about. But then I go through and I start going through all my different, uh, I keep a couple different um, task lists going, ones like personal, ones like uh, business, one mm -hmm. is business projects. And I go through and I start evaluating each one what tasks really need to get done today and, or what are the most important things in pushing forward my business and i end up yeah. with a list of anywhere from you know four to at the most 10 things now some of those things mm -hmm. may only take a couple of minutes and but those are my best days when i do that yeah. and then i yeah. stay solely focused on getting those accomplished that day and it's really a fantastic feeling also at the end of the day when you can really feel like you've knocked out all those things. And you also don't suddenly feel that you've, uh, you're, you don't have something sneak up on you that's important that you sort of lost track of or forgot about because you're really reviewing all these sort of projects and tasks that you're planning on. You're sort of reviewing them basically daily to mm -hmm. make sure that you are staying on track of what you need to work on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. It, those kind of things help you help just build momentum. And I feel like that's when you can really get things done is when you're staying on top of it on a daily basis like that. Otherwise it's so easy. And, and this happens to me all the time. It, you just, you'll focus on one thing or I'll focus on one thing for, you know, say a week and start to build some momentum on it and then get distracted by something else. And then that thing goes by the wayside for, you know, who knows, two months or whatever. And you just lose all of that momentum that you built up. So, yeah, I think that's great. You know, if you can kind of I, those those separate. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think that I think that's extremely important. And I I think for a lot of people, it feels a little bit silly. And it may just be um, you know our personality types that gravitate towards that. Um, mm. But for instance, today working on the color, if I was really careful about looking at my checklist that color is something that is going to be important for a project I want to do down the road, but it's not really of an immediate concern. There are actually, there are things that are, that are more crucial right. to get done right now. And mm -hmm. I, I also really love being able to stay focused on one or two sort of projects. That's about all I can really handle major projects. 
at one right. time. And so I was realizing that I was working on a project that I really, it's sort of down the road. I'm not really working on that. And all what I should have done is I should have taken the thoughts that I had and I should have mm -hmm. jotted them down as tasks. And that way I would feel like I got them out of my system. I'm not going to forget to try these four right. combinations I was thinking about, but I just don't right. have to mix them right now. I'll do that when right. it's more appropriate for that project that I'm working on. And then also the benefit will be that when I'm working on that project, all that information will be fresh in my mind. I'll just have the experience of mixing them rather than mm -hmm. now I'll sort of, it'll probably be, you know, two months before I really get back into this project and right. I'll sort of forgotten sort of my immediate, um, assessments I made about the colors I was mixing and I have yeah. to just remix them again anyway. So it, it ends up being very inefficient and all of this sounds sort of silly. I think to a lot of people, like I have a, um, uh, a good friend that, um, he's just about to become a father and I think he's going to suddenly realize how much, um, how much free time he has <laughs> that he's <laughs> yeah. been overlooking that you really have yeah, to definitely. focused on and really stay yeah. focused with once you have kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it really changes everything for sure. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that's actually going to be helpful for any other artists out there. And it sounds like everything we're saying, I, I feel like it's, um, I feel like we're sort of discussing things that seem to be the, the complete opposite of what you would expect from an artist's yeah. artist lifestyle. Right. Well, and that's, that's one of the reasons I really, that was kind of the idea behind this podcast is to have conversations that are, um, you know, really pertinent to what people are dealing with on a daily basis in the studio and, and, you know, struggling with how to deal with time and have a family and have a studio at home. You know, this, this is exactly the conversation that I think is, is helpful to people. I hope so anyway, but. Well, I know you just, you just got a, uh, uh, you moved into a new place, right? And so you have a new studio. Yeah, so um, I'm I'm finally in the new studio, which is a uh, one car garage that I have uh, converted into my studio. Um, and I have not solved the AC issue. Oh, oh, that's <laughs> rough, man. At least, at least uh, yeah, at least and here at least temperature should be getting a little cooler for you here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, we're moving into a part of the year that that should be bearable, but. Um, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm in Austin, Texas, and um, yeah, it's hot. That's uh, be, that's also just got to be really rough too in terms of painting. In well, it is. Yeah, you know, painting, I didn't uh, painting, drawing, and stuff on you really. Yeah, I'm really experiencing that right now and struggling with that. Um, yeah, uh, and I don't know what to do about it. Um, I'm renting too, you know, so there's only so much I can do. Uh, that's kind of, you know, I can't do anything permanent, obviously, sure. as, as far as um, building walls or anything. Um, well, when so well when we you know when we get off, we don't have to take time with it here. But we get off if you if you want, I can uh, I can share some ideas with you or hear a little more about some of the stuff, and I might be able to give you some ideas because I have something sort of similar that I'm in a a condo and yeah yeah um, and so I can't make any permanent changes to basically. I can't have anything that you can see from the outside. And mm -hmm. I have a, uh, a very large two-car garage that I'm really happy about that has mm -hmm. really high ceilings. I've got about 12-foot ceilings in it. And, nice. um, uh, but I had to figure out a way to air condition the thing. And yeah. 
not have any of it show <laughs> on the outside. Yeah. So according to the sort of the rules of our association. Right. So one thing I've looked into because, yeah, I mean, I've got, so one side is the neighbor on one wall and then a brick wall on the other side um, and then the garage door. And um, so I can't, obviously I can't have like an AC wall unit or something, right? Um, So one thing I was looking into is something called an evaporative cooler or I guess a slang would be a swamp cooler. Mm so, which doesn't uh, have any vent or exhaust or anything. So that would work, except it doesn't work in high humidity areas. Yeah. You sort of, you need to be, you know, under 50% humidity and ideally, you know, uh, not be at a hundred degrees outside or. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that probably won't work that well for where you're at. Yeah. Yes. I uh, look at I saw a chart that shows kind of the the best you can expect at you know different uh temperatures and humidity um and it looks like you know the months that I would need it the most um the best I could probably hope for is is lowering the temperature by about 10 degrees which would make it say you know 85 in here which <laughs> would still be a fairly unbearable uh working conditions we could you know I, I don't know if if uh if people want to hear as much about the idea of like the you know construction of of uh devices to cool their studios maybe they do because maybe people are facing sort of a similar I, I, situation well, yeah it's very possible um yeah Basically, if, if you have some way of venting air out of your studio in any way, I mean, it could be through the ceiling or something. Well, I mean, I do have the, you know, I have the garage door that I can lift, obviously. So, I mean, I can do that. Um, it's just when it's so hot outside, I don't know what, what that does for me. Do you have any, I mean, I, do you have any attic space? Uh yeah, there is attic space. I don't know what's going on above the garage my, here. But... My thought is what I've got in my studio is I've got a portable air conditioning unit. And uh-huh. so I can't have anything showing. But what I have done is down here where I'm at, because we you know have to worry about um, flooding associated with hurricanes coming in, like a storm surge. All of right. the buildings, like my garage, there is an opening that is built into the side of the garage that is basically can allow water to go in to equalize the pressure if um, mm. if basically if there's a lot of uh, water pushing up against the building and so it basically floods the garage rather than collapsing the building and right what i've done is i've vented out that and that's where i use my vent but i've built it in a way where it's really easy to pop off so i basically if a hurricane's coming i can just pop the, <laughs> the air conditioner <laughs> off of there but it's it's basically just a hose that runs to it and so yeah. if you have some place that you can vent out a, a hose uh, or vent it out, it will pull, it will suck that air out of that place. So like you could vent it up into the attic as an idea. And also huh. if your garage is attached to the house, yeah. if you don't think it's going to put too much strain on the actual air conditioner, I do sort of the same thing. You can literally just leave the door open between the two. And now that you have the air conditioner running because it's venting out, it's trying to suck air from somewhere so it'll generally suck air from the, oh. from the house and it'll be venting out this hot air now going up into the attic so there's a solution man i'm sure that there is no I... <laughs> there has to be it's... i know i don't think you're painting to like that for that long it's going to be really no. tough no. Those conditions. I, 
like I said, hopefully, uh, you know, we're, we're moving into a part of the year where it should be more bearable, but uh, yeah, I'm going to have to find a permanent solution before uh, next summer definitely, for sure. Definitely. So I wonder how many artists out there that have garages converted into studios. Oh my gosh. I, I think it's a fairly high percentage. <laughs> I think almost every artist I know. That's basically, well, that's not true. That's not true. Some of the, some of them eventually have these large custom built places. Mine's, Mine's just a yeah, slow yeah. conversion, although I'm really happy right. because I've got, um, I, I just was so excited when we found this place because of the, nobody else cared at all, but I was like, it's got 12 foot ceilings. I can do yeah, amazing yeah. things with lighting in here. And uh, yeah. it's about, you know, maybe 425 square feet. And so oh, yeah. between yeah. the two of those, it's still pretty good, pretty good space for working. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, well, I know you know if uh, on the uh, on the last episode, Brian Larson was talking about uh, uh, working in his neighbor's garage, at least for for the current commission that he's doing. I heard that, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Scott Waddell works out of the, um, I guess he has like a detached garage in the back. Yeah, yeah, just a, a garage nonetheless. Um, well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to work at home, it seems like this the the space in the house where we can claim as artists that it's not going to be too contestable for the rest of the family. Maybe. No, my, my wife wasn't excited about the idea of me taking over like the, the large main, you know, living family <laughs> area. And, right. that. and and now that I have my daughter, the master bedroom, yeah, master bedroom. That, honey. I'm, I'm glad I didn't know because the, the garage is sort of, it's nice because it has a door that I can close and I can sort of keep it off limits from my daughter going in there, you know, so she doesn't mm -hmm. get into anything that she shouldn't both, yeah. um, you know, hurting the artwork, but also hurting herself. I don't want either one of those right. things to happen. Yes. Yeah. My, my studio is somewhat of a minefield. So, uh, uh, thankfully it's, you know, blocked off to my daughter as well. <laughs> um, well, okay. So Doug, you mentioned that, um, you're not, you're not necessarily on that ideal schedule right now because you're dealing with other stuff. So, um, can you, do you want to talk about sure. the other stuff that you're Sure. You're so, um, as you know, I have, you know, I, I feel bad even talking. I have a, basically a large commission that I've been working on that just stretched on way longer than it was supposed to for a whole bunch of different reasons. And it's sort of been, mm -hmm. it's almost like everything that could ever go wrong in a painting scenario has gone wrong, including the delivery of this new painting that I'm supposed to deliver to the clients is now oh, going no. to be delivered on Friday the 13th. Just to give you an idea <laughs> of like how problematic this whole project has been. But I've been persevering awesome. through it. And um, and although, I like I was telling you um, earlier, I, f I feel bad even saying anything after listening to Brian's, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the commission that he's working on because the logistics behind that are just insane. So, yeah. so the size and having to move that um, and, you know, even, you know, just lucking out and being able to have, be able to work on it in his neighbor's garage is just, mm -hmm. you know, it's just really, yeah. Can you imagine <laughs> it's, I can't imagine because this is what I'm working on is not even close to the size of that. It's, it's more, yeah. um, it's about 44 by 58 inches, which for me is a pretty big painting for the way I paint. Yeah. That's a good size painting. And, um, the, the paintings of a, um, union American civil war flag. And that's it. It's just a Trump loy of the flag. And wow. so basically I've been working on that. And right now it's finished 
and it's drying and I'm hoping I will varnish it basically in, in about a week from now. And okay. really this, the last um, couple weeks, I keep wanting to get in the studio to work and they've, it seems like even though I'm done with it, it's still taking all my time. Like the, yeah. it took me quite a while just trying to figure out the logistics of how I was going to get it shipped and arranged to get it to its location. It has to go up to, to Pennsylvania. And uh, oh, wow. I mean, just calling different places, getting quotes, looking at creating it. Um, and um, you wouldn't think it would take that long, but it, it really is. And then also I'm, I'm trying to get it photographed for the possibility that I could do Jaclays or prints later on. So I'm having to coordinate mm -hmm. with somebody in, in a, a city pretty close by to try to do that. And so all these things are sort of eating up a lot of my day and mm -hmm. I'm not really finding those big blocks of time to really get in the studio. And um, so instead, when I'm finding myself a little bit of downtime, since I'm not really I, like I have a painting I want to work on, but I don't want to work and have to stop and like take two or three days off and then get back to it um, because I really just don't want the paint to dry while I'm working in the sections I work mm. on. Yeah. And so instead, I've been opting for trying to do research for the last couple of days when I have this these pieces of downtime that I'm working on, the coordinating the shipping of this piece and everything um, for a video that I'm hoping to do in 2016 that's related to color and light. And cool. I've just been spending time working on that. Um, mm -hmm. But going back to the that current commission is there anything that you're curious about that i can share with you regarding that well well i know that it's been just a, a huge ordeal and um i guess i was just wondering if you were interested in in talking about any of the um or maybe if you have like say uh part of it that was you know a certain uh struggle or something that that maybe somebody else could uh benefit from hearing about and how you solved that issue or... well uh, <laughs> I, yeah actually I, there are some things i can share uh okay I mean, some of them are just completely silly like i learned um for the piece i couldn't get stretcher bars locally for it so i had to order them and mm. every set of i i think um I think I ordered a set of stretcher bars and they were basically sort of broken on like the ends of them had, you know, cracks or it was warped. There was something uh, wrong with all of them. And I thought, I'm not going to use these. So I ordered yeah. another set. And then the next set, there were problems defective with that. And I was like, you know, this is getting ridiculous because it takes about a week each time to order them. Uh, so I yeah. ended up, you know, finally I, I made the decision the next time, you know what? I just ordered, I think I ordered three sets. Oh my <laughs> and gosh. I figured out of three sets, there's got I got to be able to make one good large like stretcher bar you know there like there should be enough good pieces and yeah. when I did it there were just enough and then I had to ship everything back and what I really learned from that though and is is it probably shouldn't have to be this way but it was smarter to just go ahead and order more than I needed and yeah pay the extra money and ship stuff back when you know the excess back to save time because just the stretcher bar right. alone I think I lost like three weeks that I was delayed just waiting oh, for stretcher bars to come in. You know? That's so frustrating. And at that point, you're you're ready to go. I'm ready right? to go. Just, so I tried to yeah. work on other things. Uh, that's the worst. But this is also yeah. consuming a large part of my studio. Like I've got all the lighting set up for mm -hmm. this project. And so yeah. it was sort of hard to work on other things. 
Um, so there were there were a number of delays like that. You know, one of the other big things that I I learned that might be useful. Um, something that I would I would enjoy hearing more from other artists as well mm-hmm. is hearing how they interact with their clients, because I think that there were also delays, for instance, in getting I would send a color study out to the client and then hearing back from them or selecting a frame and hearing back. And yeah. there was I know their time. They're probably certainly very busy. And but those delays, of course, they mount up and they added up into you know, mm-hmm. a number of weeks that I'm sort of waiting to hear back before I can move forward on things. Um, so let me jump in here real quick. Um, were you, was this a client that you got through a gallery or is this a totally independent of a gallery? Totally independent of a gallery. Um, okay. And so it was actually somebody though, that had seen a painting I did a long time ago that was in a gallery. And when they went to get that painting or, or tried to inquire about it, the painting was already, uh, I guess it was already sold at that point. And mm, so- okay. I guess they had been thinking about it for a while and decided to contact me and see if I could do something along the same lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it sort of evolved and changed a little bit from the original idea through, um, I ended up doing, I don't know if you, I did two color studies to present to them before we sort of solidified an idea, but one of them was actually two ideas in one um, because a, the original piece that I did not only did it have a flag, but it also had a, a cavalry saber. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so mm-hmm. I ended up doing a first study. The In talking with the clients, I really started to get the impression that what they were really intrigued by wasn't sort of the narrative that was implied between the saber and the flag, but mm-hmm. more of just the – it was really more about just sort of the beautiful – uh, fabric sort of undulating and the light effect. Like as I talked to them, mm-hmm. I started thinking that's really what they're interested in. in this oh, particular case. Yeah. And so the very first study I made, I designed the piece, but I, I decided to put a, uh, I made a small color study, maybe about, um, I guess it was about uh, maybe eight by 10 inches or eight by 11 inches, something like that. And I, did an overlay though the piece of transparency of what it would be like with the swords in it and then mm-hmm. so that way they could remove that and they could put it on or take it off to see what it looks like to take oh, the swords cool. or the I'm sorry the 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 saber that was in there mm-hmm. and um and after they saw that then I think that they felt that they didn't really want the saber in the piece that they liked better Mm -hmm. with just the drapery but they weren't really content with that design and the design was a little too um it was a little too contrived and the light and shadow pattern just didn't really work for them and so i ended up having to redesign that and then i created another study so i don't quite know if it counts as two studies that i presented them or three depending if you (laughs) consider the overlay yeah Um, and so, uh, sorry, please go ahead. how much, how much time would you, would you say you spent working just on, on those ideas and, and getting their input on those ideas? A lot of time. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's one of the things that I, I think we often don't take into account is how much time is spent in planning. You know, we try to get yeah. paid for our labor that goes into a work, but the amount of planning time can be huge. And, mm-hmm. um, 
for instance, the those studies themselves, I think I spent about, I probably spent about a week painting each one of those. I know they were only about eight by 10 inches. And um, wow. but for me, yeah. those were very, so my studies, I guess, are are much more, a lot of people look at the studies and say, oh, it looks sort of like a finished painting. And, and yeah, and uh, I, I could tell you an interesting story later. I talked to another artist that does work like this, and we talked about how detailed I should make my studies. Uh -huh. He was encouraging me to, um, <laughs> to make them much more simple, like is the idea. So that way I could run a lot more of them by the client rather than mm -hmm. so much energy on a, a single one. Um, but so I worked on those. So, that, you know, so that would be at least two weeks that were sort of spent on just doing that. Oh, yeah. But another part that took a long time was trying to hang the flag in the studio and get the folds and get the lighting working on it in a way that that I felt made a, a good design. And mm -hmm. um, when I first started the project, I knew I had to be able to hang this flag. And because my garage is actually constructed out of cinder block, then there's no real way I could just easily hang something on the wall. So, <laughs> and I, and I was worried that once I put it together, I was worried that my eye level, that I wouldn't be able to, you know, I didn't want to just hang it up there and then say, oh, this, these are the perfect, this is the perfect design that I want. And then realize, you know what, I really wish this was about a foot higher from, from my uh, horizon right. line from where I'm working from. So I built a, I basically built an entire scaffolding that mounted to the wall that was adjustable that could slide up and down the wall. Wow. So, that's cool. And then I attached everything to that. But so that part alone, that was probably at least another week. Yeah. Designing that, <laughs> building that. And so it's constructed like out of like two hollow core doors that I, that I attached together. And then I had to put, um, sort of the equivalent of like one by twos that I, I attached very permanently to the wall and then uh -huh. make different sort of stops on them. So I could slide these two doors up and down right. boards, you know, however I wanted. Um, yeah. and then there was, you know, just hanging the lighting, you know, because it's a very large piece. I had to figure out how I was going to mount the lighting in the studio and mm -hmm. how I was going to get enough lighting on my canvas. So I had to like mount. Yeah. Um, it's so large that I ended up having to have one light on the subject and one light on my easel. Uh -huh. And, uh, as you know, from, you know, I'm sure you've done similar situations. You also have to be careful then if you're going to do that of how you block the light between them so they don't interfere right. with one another. Mm -hmm. And also consider the amount of light that's going to be on each surface. So they're somewhat similar or similar and, you know, comparable in terms of how much light each area is receiving. So you're not painting under a very dim light, something that's very bright or something like that. Right. Um, so just, just all of those sort of concerns. I mean, that's easily, you know, a month, uh, of work of just oh my gosh. before yeah. getting started on the actual painting itself. So, so do you, have you worked out any kind of a formula to put that into, uh, the final, um, price? Um, <laughs> I, I didn't this time. Yeah. <laughs> I will next time. Yeah. Basically I, you know, I probably, you know, looking at the time, I think I spent almost double the amount of time I originally estimated on this whole project from Ugh, things, yeah. you know, just delays and different things like that. Uh, after a while, you know, I, I started thinking about it being, um, I, I started just thinking at least I'm not some gigantic like 
um, Hollywood film, like producing and going like <laughs> budget, you know, at least, at least that's not what's happening. <laughs> but I also, during the time I was working on it, um, I listened to an interesting book. I think it was called Creative Inc. And it's, uh-huh. it's about the development of Pixar um, movie studios. And it was interesting. One of their sort of catchphrases that they discussed in the book was to fail, fail early and fail often. <laughs> and it was interesting because they saw that as sort of an integral part of the creative process when you're doing something, but it's yeah. so much better to sort of crash and burn early on in a project, so you right. figure out how to fix it and recover from it, than it was to crash and burn towards the end of the project. And so, well, how do you think that that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thought, but it just strikes me. Well, how do you necessarily put that into practice? How do you know that, like, what does that mean exactly to, to focus on, you know, failing early and often rather than, I guess, is that just, just go back to planning? basically? Uh, I think and go back to planning. I, I, if I recall correctly, or what I took away from the book at that part really was that it was more the idea that whenever you're doing sort of a creative endeavor that you have a lot of unknowns, uh, that mm-hmm. there's not sort of a straightforward template, you're basically going to run into a lot of problems and right. you just have to figure out how to overcome those problems. And you're sort of lucky if those problems happen, if you encounter the problems sooner, because right. if you get to them sooner, you can figure out how to solve them sooner. Right. And, um, and there, there were a lot of things though that I took away from this project because of the size of it. Um, and, uh, and a lot of the delays that occurred that I did learn from, um, I learned, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you could just go back to thinking about how much time was involved in the prep. And just as you mentioned, whether or not I factored that into the price and I began to realize I really wasn't factoring that much into the price in terms of the setup. And it's something I definitely need to consider more. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an awkward thing kind of. Um, to sort of, I would imagine, say to a client, hey, look, um, and maybe you can tell me what your thoughts on this would be is how you would approach this. But, you know, so it's like, okay, well, here's the price of the painting, just this, this physical object. And then <laughs> I also took all this time, you know, in preparation, you know, I built this scaffold on the wall. I did, you know, I did all this other work. How would, do you have any thoughts on how one would even begin to sort of roll that into like one final invoice? <laughs> I, to be honest, I sort of don't think you even say it. I, the, right. I, so I you just give, you just really imagine what's, what's involved. Yeah. And I, and I, like so many other things, when you start to really look at the cost of something, the part of the reason that um, that a lot of the fine art or the type of art that that at least I know that I do that's very very labor intensive because of the amount of sort of detail and care that you're taking with everything, mm-hmm. um, there are just a lot of variables that you don't necessarily recognize. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. You know, it's sort of taking right. those things into account. Yeah. And part of you know one of the um, one of the reasons that you have to charge quite a bit and it's such a sort of an expensive endeavor is just for that reason. There are so many uh, right. 
things that come up. And, and so in some ways, you're, you're sort of paying for somebody's experience, too, and being able to figure out how to work through all these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's hard to explain for to a client in terms of uh, just art. I, but you I mean, but you look at other professions like uh, I mean, I, I think of going to my dentist and my dentist comes in and sees me, you know, after um, uh, mm-hmm. the the hygienist has sort of worked with me. And I actually see the dentist for maybe five minutes and, right. you know, and the hygienist, you know, maybe the whole thing takes like 20 minutes. And then you look at what the bill is and you're like, wow, like <laughs> this seems crazy, you know, it's like a couple hundred dollars or something. And, right. um, but you start to realize that part of also what you're paying for is all the equipment that they're using in there. Mm-hmm. Um, all the, uh, you know, the, the person that's scheduling everything you're paying for the whole billing you're paying right. for, you're also, you're paying just for the experience that those people have that you're sort of trusting right. their yeah. experience. And as artists, we have a lot of, we have all those same expenses too. I mean, we have not only is at some point you could start telling the client, well, not only did I have to build scaffolding and everything, but I also had to pay for, you know, air conditioning my studio and mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. to pay for all these other materials and I've got to right. figure out my shipping costs and I've, you know, it's just, it could just go on and on and on. And I've, you know, and somebody has got to be covering all my bookkeeping and, uh, you know, I had an accountant right. I had to pay to do my taxes. I mean, so like there's all these, we, we basically yeah. run these small businesses and we have all oh, yeah. a small business and yet it's, we have to also struggle with trying to be creative and putting all this energy into manufacturing a product at the same time. All right. So do you keep, um, are you keeping a tally of, you know, shipping costs and, uh, stretcher bars and everything that's going, all the physical stuff that's going into that painting or. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not at this point. I used to have a formula that I used that I would take all those things into account. I had a spreadsheet and this one has just gone so far off the rails, but it's, it's almost like it's just better not to look anymore. <laughs> it's better just to just, you know, just get it delivered and get it done. And at the same time, you know, um, it's certainly not something, though, that I would ever go to the client and say, you know what? I underestimated the time that was in this. Can you? Pay yeah, me? I'm not going to do uh, that. You know, I, I set a price. And so if something goes wrong, I take that as that was my responsibility. And, you know, it's it's my responsibility to solve that. And so. I'll take that off my end, you know, right. I'll just, right. I'll learn from that and I won't make similar mistakes on the, the next thing. I mean, some things, you know, you might look at like the stretcher bar showing up broken. Well, you know, you could say, well, that wasn't really my fault, but ultimately I'm the one that just has to take responsibility for that and say, well, that's the reality of the situation. Things are going to show up broken. Mm-hmm. So it's probably mm-hmm. better just to order multiples and return what yep. I don't need and spend the extra cost because it saves time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I try to look at things that even though there were some parts of it that were out of my control, there were decisions along the way that I could have made that would have made up that time. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are some things I, I gained out of it. Uh, you know, I can tell you something that's extremely simple that I can't believe I didn't do for years that saved me, I don't know, anywhere from 45 minutes, probably about 45 minutes a day, every day when I worked on that, I mean, I gained 45 minutes. I was losing 45 minutes a day to something very simple. Um, and okay. What, what's that? <laughs> wouldn't you like to know that? <laughs> um, so you had mentioned in that, in the morning time when you work that sometimes you 
put together or just mix of a palette. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do any kind of pre-prepared palettes at all in terms of like laying out like different strings or colors or anything? No, I don't. Okay. So you won't, you won't have that same labor I have. I, I know that for a lot of stuff I do, I sort of pre-mix a palette and especially on a painting like this, there were huge sections I was doing that were basically one local color. Mm-hmm. And so it was very helpful to mix up a number of strings. So as I was painting, I wasn't constantly just putting out more paint all the time and having to sort of balance between different uh, uh, different mixtures straight out of the tube. So I sort of right. pre-prepared a number of strings. And cool. what I would do though, is I would put those on my palette and then I save those because they're good for about, you know, I can stretch them for about a week or so. And uh-huh. every, when I was, when I'd start every morning, um, well, I should, I should do it from cleaning up in the evenings. When I'm done painting, I take all those colors on my palette and I transfer them from, I have a wooden handheld palette and I would transfer mm-hmm. them over to a glass palette. And then I take the glass palette, I put it in a container that actually has uh, like a plastic container that has oil of cloves soaked into a paper towel, basically taped to the, the lid of it inside. And that helps mm. keep the paint wet longer. And that whole thing then I put inside a plastic bag that I seal to make it airtight. And then yeah. all of that goes in my freezer. Well, that's not really the, the way I'm saving time because that was sort of a normal practice I had. Okay. What I was doing that was completely ridiculous, and I don't know why it didn't dawn on me 10 years ago, was that when I would transfer the paint from the glass palette over to the wooden palette, you know, somebody could say, well, why don't you just paint from the glass palette? It's, it's right. basically just because I don't like painting off a glass palette. I like a handheld palette that I can sort of hold sort of in my cone of vision while I'm working. Um, mm-hmm. But I would actually sit there and I might have 30 colors that I had to scrape up with my knife and transfer them over to the other surface one by one by one. Right. And it actually takes a while to do that. So you yeah. you might lose, you know, uh, 15 minutes or something just transferring over the paints, you know each day in the morning and the 15 minutes, putting them all away, um, or maybe longer, I guess it was longer. because so I was thinking it was more like you know, 45 minutes I was saving. And uh-huh. what I finally did is I just built a little device that, uh, basically out of plastic that is shaped like the top curvature of my palette. And I put the paints on there and I just lifted the whole piece of plastic and put it on the glass palette. And then I'd pick. Oh, wow. So I wasn't transferring 30 colors. I was just moving one thing over. And so now painting went from, you know, that just that transfer of paint in the mornings and the evenings, you know, that went from this like 45 minute procedure to, you know, five or six minutes or something like that. And awesome. It, it seems so obvious, you know, and yeah. I don't know why I didn't, why I didn't do it sooner, but it's one of those things I worked out on this and now it saves me a lot of time having those. Cool. And I've built a couple of them now that I, that I use for just transferring paint back and forth and storing different. And also I can have different projects I'm working on, on different ones and pull them out of the freezer. So if I have two different paintings going, I can oh, pull the awesome. paint out and just snap on the, snap on the, uh, the colors I'm working with that day. Yeah, that's great. Oh, um, you know, I think another thing that I ran into that I don't know if did you and did you and Brian talk about the 
paint drying on him on his on that large painting? Um, I don't think we got into that in the interview. Um, but he, I, I talking to him later, I, I know that 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 has been a little bit of an issue. And then, and then working a so large, um, he was having um, having to sort of work out a, a little bit of a different. Um, way of painting using much bigger brushes and trying to, um, you know, blend in the same way that he normally would working on that larger scale with larger brushes. But so I think that was a bit of an issue um, getting the same kind of softness in places where he normally would um, because of that drying a little bit. I, you know, it was, a, that was a big problem I encountered on this painting because I was, I'm used to, um, it, I'm used to working on paintings that are not only small enough, the paintings, but within the painting, there are sort of more individual objects that are sort of broken up. Like even a, right. a piece of drapery or something might have an object mm -hmm. in front of it. So it breaks it into sections mm -hmm. and I can sort of tackle a section in a day or two um, without it drying on me. And mm -hmm. because this was really one continuous object, even though it had mm. these different stripes on it, yeah, I was I couldn't paint an entire stripe in a day. And I know for some people that sounds like, you know, you can't paint a whole stripe in a day. That seems ridiculous. <laughs> but for the way I paint, you know, sort of yeah. going over the form fairly carefully, um, you know, it might take me four or five days to try to paint a, you know, a big stripe. And I was having problems with it drying on me, even to the point where it was sort of getting tacky overnight mm. at times when and i'd come back in and you can seam it up you know but it's uh, at least my experience has been it's very challenging to perfectly seam this yeah wet paint into dry paint and not have yeah. any sort of subtle you know place where it shows so sometimes if you're going to do that you can sort of strategically hide it along an area that has sort of some type of uh high right. value change or something like that it almost looks like a line mm -hmm. somewhere so it's not that noticeable and, mm -hmm. um, and I kept fighting that over and over and over in this painting. And the other problem was that because the forms were quite large, because they were really all part of this one big undulating surface, right? my usual procedure is that I can get a piece of form in or get a large area of form. And while it's still wet, I can look at it and say, you know what? I need to just change the curvature in this little area a little bit more and go back right. in there and lighten it or darken it or change the chroma, whatever I have to do to get that form to change a little bit. But in this case, I might work for, you know, a day and then it sort of dries for the most part. I sort of seam on the next day, another section. And then as soon as I finish that, the fur, the one I'd done the previous day is now definitely dry. And now mm -hmm. that I finish this next day, I look back and I think, oh, no. you know what? I really would have liked to have changed the way these, different forms or intermeshing sort of the morphology between these different forms and get them more yeah. exact, but I can't because yesterday's work is basically dry. And so yeah. there's no good way of doing it. And, um, that was leading to my feeling was uh, I was getting areas that were more overmodeled than they should be because I couldn't quite see the larger form until I had a bigger section in to realize that, you know, I'd probably using up a little bit too much value range in this first section that I was working on. Yeah. And I, right. I didn't have a context to guess by, um, you know, until more of the painting went in. And so I, that became a big problem 
for me on this piece. And I had to start figuring out different ways, like changing my mediums out. Um, you know, a, a big thing that I happened, I just sent out an email to my email list about changing my neutral gray mixture that I often use for lowering mm -hmm. the chrome of colors. And this painting drove me to completely reformulate that because in the past, I'd always used a combination of an ivory black, a burnt umber, and a raw umber and uh -huh. mix them together in a particular ratio to get that uh, like a neutral black that I could just lighten with titanium white. And, right. but I think that the raw umber and the burnt umber were accelerating the drying of that a little faster than I wanted to, particularly in the darker colors. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I ended up reformulating a new mixture, uh, just figuring out a different ratio of using a, uh, it was really a transparent oxide red, but in Windsor Newton paint, it's labeled as a burnt sienna and mixing that with ivory black and using that. Um, and also for the, for the white stripes on the painting, it's actually has a, a patina on it. So it's a little bit, you know, it's sort of dirty and it's got like right. a tinge to it, which really puts it more sort of into the orange hue family of the white mm -hmm. stripes on it. And I ended up originally using burnt umber a lot to darken the values of the white sections of the, uh, the white stripes. Uh -huh. And that would dry so fast because of the burnt umber that I right. basically had to come up with other mixtures that were uh, other ways or using other colors to darken it without using the burnt umber. So I had to start switching out colors that I'm not used to. Um, I stopped using mediums that I normally use and had to switch oh. to slower drying mediums. Uh -huh. um, you know, and just all those things, uh, they turned out, although they were very frustrating at the time, they now have sort of become another piece of my arsenal, another trick in my bag. Yeah, that's great. To, I can use for other paintings in the future. Yeah. And so even though there's a lot of time that was lost, uh, you really just have to look forward and hope that it will be gained that from the experience on that for future projects. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like it definitely uh, will be beneficial. Um, what are some of the, um, what's the medium that you moved to, uh, the medium you moved from and to, uh, to change that drying time? Well, I originally was using, call correctly, um, I, I, for sort of the underpainting areas, I was really, first I just started out using like a, a alkyd medium, basically a liquid and uh -huh. just some high quality, high quality odorless mineral spirits. And that wasn't really an issue because I don't mind if that dries in the underpainting. I don't mind having sort of strange seams and stuff from wet to dry areas that, because I just right. know I'm going to paint over it anyways. Um, but as I started getting into upper layers and uh -huh. reworking it, I needed something that was drying much slower. And normally I can still do a mixture of something like a, like a safflower oil or a linseed oil with some alkyd in it because I still like the alkyd often because usually I want paint to dry a little faster than it normally does. And yeah. I basically went from, okay, just eliminating the alkyd to eventually I was just using safflower oil. And huh. I thought about using poppy oil. Uh, I don't have any in the studio. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so I ended up using safflower oil as my medium and that helped slow things down. And I considered using an oil of cloves mixed into the paint 
Um, but I've got mixed feelings about that in terms of the archivalness. I, I, it's hard to really know, you know, there, there are certain concerns that are, that people express about the oil of cloves slowly darkening over time. And although have you ever used oil cloves? No, I haven't. Um, if you add like just a drop, like let's say one drop to uh, maybe a dime to nickel sized amount of paint and mix it in, it'll sort of double, double to triple the drying time. So it gives you a lot more open working time. Wow. And um, so that would have been a possibility. Um, but there are, you, and you can read about in uh, Ralph Mayer's The Artist's Handbook, him yeah. talking about using it, but also, um, let's see, I think it's The Painter's Handbook. Um, I can't remember the author. Uh, I can't remember the the author of the newer one. Um, but he he talks about the concern of the oil of cloves darkening over time. Mm. Now, I've talked to some other artists that have used it regularly in their paints, and they tell me, you know, over a 25-year period, they have never seen any effect from it thus far. Um, oh. And it may be that you're using it in very, very, you are using very, very tiny amounts of it. So right. it may be that, you know, you take that one drop and if it's spread through that amount of a nickel sized amount of paint, it may be so sort of insignificant that you're really not going to see anything. However, if you had used it as like a medium, like you're dipping your brush in it, then that would be a whole other story. Right. And so I couldn't decide. And I was thinking that if I can get away without using it, I was going to try not to use it. But that would have been another possibility that I did consider for extending the um, the drawing time of the colors. Cool. <clears throat> well, Doug, um, thanks, man. That's great stuff. I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, is there anything else you wanted to um, say to all of our millions of listeners? <laughs> all, all, all millions? Well, <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, we are, yeah. <laughs> Number one rated podcast in um, my zip code, I think. So. <laughs> all right. Well, Actually, well, this, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, it was really interesting listening to both Brian and Scott. And uh, you know, I appreciate you having me follow up both of those guys. And it's really nice to try to get a little bit of an insight into the everyday working practices of other artists. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's something that isn't really taught very much. And in, in the schools, at least nothing that I became aware of. Uh, right. so it's really good to hear what other people are going through. And sometimes I think it gives you sort of a feeling of camaraderie, but also, mm -hmm. uh, gives you ideas of things you might do. So I appreciate you putting together this podcast and what you're trying to do with it. Well, thank you very much, man. Um, and I, I very much appreciate you being a part of it. All right, man. Well, I'll catch you later then. All right. Thanks, All Doug. Bye-bye. Right. Hey guys, me again. Uh, great stuff from Douglas Flint. I want to thank him again for taking the time to be on the show. Um, please go to his website at douglasflint.com. You can link to all of his social media from there. And do yourself a favor and get on his mailing list. Doug is just really generous with uh, sharing all the knowledge he's discovered about painting. Um, and he shares that. Uh, through his mailing list. So if you're not on that list, go go to his website and sign up. 
also uh, by his video. He has a uh, still life demonstration video that just has a ton of information. Really great stuff. Uh, you know, talks a lot about color and, and form and and going through setting up his still life and just all phases of, of doing the painting. Um, and it's really, really great. So go buy that and be on the lookout. He mentioned um, releasing a video on color in 2016. We're going to hold you to that, Doug. Uh, so, uh, yeah, keep a, keep a lookout for that. Um, okay, a couple other things before I close this episode. I mentioned... Um, uh, towards the beginning part of the interview, being on this new schedule, getting up at five and, and getting, uh, say, about an hour and a half of painting in before kind of the rest of the house wakes up and, and getting going with the day. Um, and then I teach from nine to one every day. So then I get home and I was telling Doug that I was having trouble uh, with energy getting back into the studio at, at say, one thirty or so. And since then, I have gotten back on um, a, a bit of a um, gotten back to exercising just a little bit in the mornings um, before sitting down in front of the easel, and that's it's really just doing super simple stuff for like five to ten minutes, like you know, grabbing a couple of dumbbells and doing some squats, holding the dumbbells, and um, and some other exercises that I got from uh, a website called artofmanliness.com. Uh, I've linked to uh, those. There's like a 15 minute kind of simple morning routine that you can do. I linked to a video to that in the show notes. So check that out. Um, Anyway, yeah, yeah, that's done like wonders for me. Even just that little bit in the morning, just kind of get the blood flowing. And um, it's just giving me a lot more energy in the afternoon. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to mention, uh, something I haven't done before on this podcast but it's only episode three so i feel like i can still do anything i haven't really set any uh set any rules or boundaries for this thing yet um i wanted to give a movie recommendation Uh, i saw this movie over the weekend and it just punched me in the gut emotionally Uh, it's called southpaw it came out this year um stars jake gyllenhaal forrest whitaker rapper 50 cent and Rachel McAdams. Um, I, I guess I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't. Uh, my wife wanted to see it because it had Rachel McAdams in it, and um, I'll try to talk about it without any spoilers. But you know, if, if you've seen the trailer, I guess you kind of know what happens. But so within the first ten minutes, I was just shocked, and you know, tears are sort of welling up. And I'm not a, a movie crier, like. A, I just don't really do that. Occasionally, maybe a little bit misty, but this was like, this was like real tears. But anyway, I I loved it because it's a dude who like just gets totally knocked down and out. Um, Pardon the the, uh, boxing metaphors, but he loses everything. His life is just totally crumbling. It's Jake Gyllenhaal as a boxer who grew up in an orphanage and and really has no other skills outside of boxing he um <laughs> just <laughs> uh, he doesn't really know how to deal with people um he has a good relationship with his daughter and his wife which is sweet and i think probably why i connected uh to the movie so much 
Um, but but outside of boxing and being you know kind of a sweet guy to the people that he loves, um, he just has no skills, and he comes to a point where he loses everything. And, um, uh, you know, loses the will to, to, to fight, um, for a period of time and, um, loses custody of his daughter and it, it just it could not be more down and out and just takes a real sober look at his life and decides that, um, he can't go on like that. And, um, I just love in a movie when you see a guy make a, a real transformation for the better and, and face up to um face up to his life and and decide that um he's going to improve and that's basically what this movie was and i loved it and i've been thinking about it ever since um so maybe you'll like it too i don't know check it out uh okay thanks everybody see you next time bye